So before we get to our conversation, we want to give a shout out to our friends at Casper who made today's episode possible. I'm a family guy. I love being as involved as I can with my kids' day-to-day activities. And my functional medicine practice keeps me pretty busy too. It's all good stuff, but it's a lot to balance. And some days I'm wiped out by the time I get home. So in order to do it all again the next day, I need sleep. And there's a lot that goes into a good night's rest, but having a quality mattress is key. Casper makes a really cool, very comfortable mattress with four layers of high-density memory foam and something called zone support. It's an innovative foam framework that contours to each area of the body. People love it because it's soft under your shoulders, but then firmer under your hips. Oh, and the mattress comes delivered to your door in a small box, so it feels like a magic trick. To get your own Casper mattress, go to casper.com and use code GOOPFELLAS for $100 off your purchase of select mattresses. Additional terms and conditions apply. See casper.com slash terms. Hey, welcome to Goopfellas. I'm Chef Seamus Mullen with my co-host, Dr. Will Cole. So, Will, you're in a relationship. I am. I'm in a long-standing marriage relationship. And I'm in a relationship. And today we're talking to Stan Tatkin, who is also in a relationship, but he's also a relationship expert. Yes, he is. Stan Tatkin is the founder of the Psychobiological Approach to Couples Therapy, otherwise known as the PACT Institute. PACT is an approach that combines neuroscience arousal regulation, sounds fun, and attachment theory. Mm -hmm. He's also the author of some incredible books on love and relationships like We Do and Your Brain on Love, which is an awesome book. It's great, yeah, I'm a big fan. I've actually read it twice now. Your Brain on Love and his approach is very, it's derived from attachment theory, but it's kind of distilled into a way that's really applicable and easy to, um, to take the lessons that you learn about your own attachment style yeah. and apply them to a relationship. I found it to be very helpful. Yeah, this conversation, um, anybody that's in a relationship, anybody who wants to be in a relationship, I got so much yeah. good practical tips in here that I went home and I was a better husband. And Does I, your wife agree? <laughs> well, the jury's out for that. Okay. So early days. I have, a, I have a lot to work on. but We all do. <laughs> So without further ado, here's our conversation with Stan Tatkin. I have to say personally, I'm really excited because um, you don't know this, but I'm like totally in love with you. Aww. I Yeah, I've been really, your, well, particularly the brain on love has really helped me a lot. Um, I've you. now listened to it twice while I'm mountain biking. So you've actually been with me when I went over the handlebars and, and I, <laughs> crashed pretty badly, but. It was so um, good. <laughs> yeah, but I, but your calm voice you know, made me feel as though everything was going to be okay. Thank you. That's Did awesome. I say, now that you've crashed, pick yourself up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On, honestly, you... in the age of superficial and flippancy and like just, I, I believe in many ways, like self-obsession, you talk about things about mutual respect and trust and honor and integrity and relationships. Mutual, of course. Honestly, I echo what Seamus said. It's a breath of fresh air amidst all this, you know, vapid stuff that we hear. Thank you. If you can just kind of as a starting point, if you can explain your concept of, um, of of island wave and anchor, and how that relates to individuals, both on their own and in, in a relationship, and also if you can just touch on a little bit on on sort of evolutionary biology and how that has informed some of your thinking about um, interpersonal dynamics. 
Sure. The Island Anchor and Wave is is relabeled for uh, popular consumption because this is based on a research model, infant research and adult mm-hmm. attachment research, and the, and the labels are not as nice. And so mm-hmm. uh, so we changed the names uh, to protect the innocent. Um, <laughs> uh, so here we're talking about attachment theory, which is based on uh, the subjective experience uh, that an infant has with its primary attachment figure or figures. Mm-hmm. And that sense of safety and security allows the, uh, the baby to be fully resourced and without fear and anxiety to uh, to be with mother, to eventually explore the non-mother world without consequence, and uh, and to feel safe in both realms, with mother, uh, without mother, uh, and moving toward in a way, and so on. Now, I could go into this in much more depth, but suffice it to say, this is uh, something that is tested from age 10 months, you know, and it could be, uh, an infant could be tested up to 18 months, but that's the, that's mm-hmm. the, uh, the end of the line for that uh, particular mm-hmm. test, and it's called the strange situation. Uh-huh. So that's been around for a long time, and now we have adult measures in terms of adult attachment, which is very similar to the strange situation, except there are linguistic models for testing this. And so if you come from a family where relationships come first, at least with one parent, one caregiver relationship comes first above the self, above performance, above appearance, then, and that caregiver is resourced uh, themselves and is alert and available and interested, curious to find the baby's mind, and is able to spend lengthy periods of face-to-face, eye-to-eye, skin-to-skin contact, uh, then these are the ingredients that go towards uh, secure attachment. Uh, uh, that's basically it. I mean, there are other mm-hmm. other ideas here, but you're getting, you know, this is the basic idea. Uh, now, let's make it less than that. Okay, so if you have uh, come from a family where you didn't have a caregiver that was secure autonomous and didn't do the things I just mentioned, mm-hmm. then you, you are different, um, you know, gradients of insecure. Insecure means you're anxious because in the human primate world, what drives us is the need to connect, need to bond with at least one other person upon whom we can depend. Without that, there's a failure to thrive. And so this is really uh, extremely important to us because uh, after many, many years of study and one longitudinal study in Harvard shows that the uh, you know, what makes for a happy person, what makes for a person who lives a long life, a healthy life, it's someone who has at least one secure attachment or secure functioning mm. relationship um, mm. at all times. Okay, so it's really important. So let's say somebody is insecure and uh, and clingy. Um, this comes from a situation where the baby the child had to take care of one of their parents' emotional state. Mm-hmm. And because of this, they had to cling to the child because they weren't resourced, they weren't uh, emotionally refueled enough to be able to go out and, ex- and experience the outside world. Plus, because that caregiver is a secure base, they can't really go anywhere without the other, without that caregiver's being okay, right? So, so would that be in the case of? Sorry to interrupt, but just yeah. a question: If that would that be in the case of like somebody who has a narcissist as a parent? Well, that is, and it has to do with more with personality theory. We could get into that, but um, uh, the distancing group in general, the distancing group, which I haven't talked about yet, uh, it contains people with narcissism. Although everybody has narcissism, but sure. this group 
uh, has a lot of the features and characteristics of a narcissistic structure, uh, of a personality structure. But attachment in and of itself is not personality. It's adaptation to environment. It is, uh, it's not pathologic. It's not pathogenic. Uh, so, so yeah, you get a lot of things that are very much like that. And in the clinging side, you get, uh, you get in the extreme uh, characteristics that are very similar to what's called a borderline personality disorder. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, uh, but that's you know that's going over a line uh, that we're we're not talking about just yet. So on the clinging side. I, uh, as the baby, I'm encouraged to stay young, to stay close by, uh, stay dependent. And as I cling and as I move toward my caregiver, alternately my caregiver is overwhelmed and frustrated with me and, uh, and wants me to go away. Uh, that caregiver is preoccupied, dealing with something else, and I keep coming and I'm, I'm whining and I'm wanting to, you know, to sit on the lap. And, uh, and this caregiver will alternately reject me. And that sets up uh, this uh, experience, uh, kind of a relational trauma, where I don't know what I'm going to get. So if I come near you, I could get slapped away and punished. Um, but I can't stay away from you because I fear abandonment. Mm -hmm. And so this then moves into what we call the wave, uh, somebody who is carrying memories around of what it's like to depend on somebody. And when I depend on somebody, I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to get punished. The person is going to get tired of me. I'm too much. I'm a pain in the ass, right? I'm too mm -hmm. needy. And that makes me very unattractive. And, uh, and then I have another feature, and that is uh, as soon as I get close to somebody, that's when I get ambivalent. As soon as I hope, that's when I get angry and snarky and, uh, and negativistic. Uh, and that, uh, that has to do with be careful what you wish for because if you get it, then it may not be enough. So right. um, it's not fun to be a wave, um, um, but it's Tell not. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, all right, but it's, it's not, you know, I don't want people to take away from this that this, this is a world about islands, anchors, and waves. This is a very small part of mm -hmm. the equation about, uh, in terms yeah. of uh, relationships. And, and the anchor is the secure person. The anchor is the unicorn. It doesn't really exist. <laughs> oh, no, the, the anchor. Well, the, yeah, that was my feeling as, I was, as I've kind of been reading that. Everybody, I mean, I certainly see in myself, I can speak mostly to myself than, more than I can to anyone else, but I know I have anchor tendencies. I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily always an anchor, right. but I definitely think there are times, and it also depends upon the context of the relationship and who I'm interacting with, but there are times that I'm very much an anchor. So I, I think it's important to understand that these three um, sort of, these, these three different types that we're talking about are not hard and fast. Right. We're yeah. And we're not talking about states. We're talking about an ongoing, uh, unrelenting uh, fear and uh, an organization around the memory of either being abandoned or on the other side with islands being engulfed, mm -hmm. being uh, being taken over, having yourself uh, uh, usurped, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's so pervasive that it, in, it intrudes on everything this person does in these close relationships. Mm -hmm. It only happens in a dependency relationship. Everybody else is ishy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I self-diagnosed myself <laughs> as an island uh, who wants to be an anchor really, really bad. Uh, and my wife, and this is according to her, she would consider herself a wave in preparation for us talking today. She's like, I think I'd be a wave. So what the hell <laughs> is an Sounds island? Like she's picking apart. <laughs> I'll choose the wave. What the hell is an island and a wave supposed to do, Stan? What are we supposed to do? Well, <laughs> there is no problem. It's like cats and dogs. Can they get along? And yeah, they can. Uh, it, it, we're, we're dealing with we're dealing with a memory system that, if unrepaired, 
goes on as if the same thing is going to happen again and again. Mm -hmm. And so here's the problem. When we get into a relationship with another person, they're not a therapist. And our behaviors that are uh, protecting the self are not friendly. And they're going to cause blowback, right? So I am a wave, let's say, and I do things that begin to cause you to feel unsafe and mm -hmm. insecure. And now you start to react to me and I go, aha, I was right. It's always this way. And that's how it goes. Um, however, if you understand yourself, if you understand yourself, you say you're an island. Well, then you would have to take responsibility for your reflexes, for your impulses that are mm -hmm. islandish. And what are those? Being dismissive, ignoring your partner when they come in, uh, not giving them a hug, um, not being tender, um, uh, you know, being distracted, not wanting to be interfered with or interrupted, uh, you know, not going to bed with your partner. All these things that are very island-like. Yes. Yeah. You I, described I, me at my worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I love you had you had a suggestion for when islands and waves, because waves, and I've seen this in my own in my own life too, a tendency to move towards looking for some sort of affirmation or, or recognition, move towards my partner, to which my partner moves away because then she feels encroached upon, which makes me move further towards her, which makes her move away further, and it becomes like this, you know, the island, the island and the wave are migrating across the ocean, and they're not getting any closer. And one of the tools that you suggested that I, I loved was that for I mean both of both parties to be cognizant of understanding how their how their behavior is affecting the other or interpreted or understood by the other and how for the island taking a step towards the wave sometimes it's just one step like moving towards them a little bit right and understanding okay it's important for my partner to have a hug or a kiss when they walk in the door or first thing in the morning when they wake up like that i think is really really helpful i want people to understand that uh, that when we get into attachment, it, this has nothing to do with love. Uh, a lot of people confuse this for love, mm -hmm. right? Oh, my partner really feels good when I go away. Uh, they don't love me. Um, my partner feels really, really loves me because whenever I go away, they cry. That, no, uh, it has nothing to do with love. It has to do with safety and security, full stop. Mm -hmm. These are biological measures that are, that are through recognition systems that, that trigger uh, a very primitive sense of danger and threat. And that's it. Uh, mm -hmm. And so if, if you are a, uh, you know, your partner's whisperer, if your partner, uh, you know, what's a particular breed of animal as you are, would you learn your, your, your partner, would you learn that animal to know how to move them around? I mean, if you had a dog and every time you approached it on the left and it bit you, you'd be pretty stupid, you know, for arguing and keep approaching on the left. You'd have to learn your animal. And if people think of it this way, it's far easier, I think, to envision how this works. Mm -hmm. I understand what I do that is not commensurate with secure functioning. And by secure functioning, I mean a system that's based on fairness, justice, sensitivity, shared power, fully collaborative, fully cooperative. We're both stakeholders in the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, that relationship means that I have to care about my effect on you because that will blow back on me. Mm -hmm. There's nothing right. I can do to you that won't come back. Yeah. Um, and I also have to know how to handle you. Mm -hmm. um, we don't like things that we cannot manage. We don't like to feel incompetent with our things, with our people, with our pets. We don't like those things. And this is about competency. 
uh, and uh, and there's a whole other uh, piece of uh, business here that we we'll probably get into that overrides this whole. Uh, topic about attachment, and that has to do with uh, doing the right thing and uh, having having character, and then putting in guardrails. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, shared principles of governance by which you both uh, agree to do things or not to do things that protect you from each other. Yeah, we have to understand that the human primate, by nature, is unreliable. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, aggressive, xenophobic, yes. um, always aware of what is missing. Always comparing and contrasting, fickle, moody, mm-hmm. influenceable by the group. Yeah. Um, what could possibly go wrong? And so people are in la-la land if they think they can bear bond with somebody else and not realize two different people, two different families, two different genetics. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. um, how, how do we do this? Well, like all civilizations, we come up with principles that protect us from each other. Thou shalt not kill wouldn't work right. if I'm working on it. Yeah? Yeah. You wouldn't yeah. sleep tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and you say, and you say this, which I, which is was really kind of revelatory for me that the the notion that the human brain is hardwired more for war than for love. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And by that, not to use uh, a cliche, hardwired, but we have more threat centers in the brain for our survival, survival mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. species. So, and this happens on the micro level, uh, all the way through the brain, the brain stem, uh, the lower limbic system, everywhere in the brain, we have areas that you know threat networks that. Uh, allow us to pick up anything that could be dangerous. Uh, and if that uh, gets triggered, uh, unless we're well integrated, unless there are other, uh, other circumstances around us uh, that uh, to mediate us acting out, we're going to shoot first and ask questions later. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you talk about how our brains perceive things off and they're not always telling us the truth, but we believe them to be the truth. And I see that in my marriage a lot where sh- my wife will say something innocently enough and it irritates me or I'm feeling offended. How do we break that mental offense with our partner or whoever else that's in our life? Well, if you have an agreement, let's say the two of you have an agreement because uh, people are going to hurt each other with words and phrases and faces and voices and movements and gestures. So that's just going to happen. But if you agree that, you know, if you say, I I really felt hurt about that, then your partner, if, uh, if, you know, they truly bought into this, should say, I'm sorry, I I didn't mean to do that. Or can you tell me exactly what I did? Because I wasn't even aware. Mm-hmm. Um, you repair, you fix, you you error correct. That's all we can do, and that is a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a huge thing. Right. But we're gonna. There's no way to not say do things that are going to be misunderstood and hurt, and hurt the other partner. Yeah, for a variety of reasons. So let's say my wife or someone's partner is pissed at them, and they are like trying to fight or wanting to get into a fight. What's the best thing for somebody on the other end of that de- that doesn't want to get in a fight, that doesn't want to escalate it, but is getting heated and like wants to almost engage in the fight? But what's the healthiest way to go about that? <laughs> um, so let me explain something. This might help with the answer. Uh, keep this the formula in mind. State influences or drives memory, and memory drives state. They're Constant, in, constantly interacting with each other. I feel something, and now I remember every time I felt this way. Uh-huh. Um, I remember something, and I'm starting to feel uh, that way. Okay, uh-huh. so that's how memory and state interact. So now you have that. State alters perception like a funhouse mirror. So that's the ground we're standing on. Not much to go on. And so uh, when you're on fire, the very first thing I need to do is shift your state. I have to mm-hmm. do something 
that is gestural, that uh, that is uh, quick, that that optically demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got into I don't think she will mind my daughter uh, and I got into a fight and uh, and this time I wasn't going to have it I wasn't going to go and apologize my wife said you're the adult I've heard that many times no mm-hmm. I'm not doing it I'm really mad this time she's coming to me mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, you know in our household when there's a breach in any of the relationships we suffer so you know this is not a fun time but I was sitting at the kitchen table and um, she walks in with a, a towel over her head. And I knew exactly what that meant. I, I recognized it, and immediately that threat system was uh, disconnected. I went over her to her and gave her a hug. I apologized. She apologized. We cried. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it took something that was so simple, mm-hmm. visual, that completely uh, disarmed me and uh, and short circuited the threat system. That's mm. what you need. Whether it's getting right. on the floor, no. um, whether it is, I mean, uh, usually something that's silly, funny, cute. Uh, be careful because <laughs> uh, what's cute to you may may be dangerous <laughs> to the other person. Right. So you have to be careful. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your mileage will vary, but <laughs> yeah. But that's what you need is you shift the state first and then. Yeah, that's I, I love that because you you one of the things that I took away too from from your your brain on love is um, this notion that and this has a lot to do with also what you're talking about, Will. Like we start to we we have this cognitive dissonance where we start to play movies in our head and we're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is what's going on. And mm-hmm. I feel like often that happens um, when communication is happening via a device and we don't actually have either physical contact or, or we don't see someone. And you're, when you're talking about the actual, which I, we, I want to talk about more in a minute, but the idea, the moment when you're falling in love, the idea that you're actually are on drugs, you're on endogenous drugs, yeah. that you, the, the physical contact, the eye contact, all of those things, there's a, there's, you know, there's a bio- there's a physiological response within the body that changes the way you feel. Yeah. And obviously, when you know, as you, you, one of the things you pointed out that makes complete sense to me is when you see someone's eyes dilated, you trust them more. You mm-hmm. have you have a sense of, of like of comfort. So that like looking at someone from when you're close to them, as you did with your daughter, like taking the, the yes. towel off her head and looking at her and holding her, there's an actual physiological change in her that wouldn't happen if you picked up the phone and called her. No. No, it wouldn't. Um, maybe if we had our phones in our hands and still hugged, right? No, okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that has to do. That has to do with the, uh, the uh, neuroendocrine stress system, which is only shut off. Uh, well, it's shut off most effectively by touch, mm-hmm. and especially touch that is, you know, chest to chest, stomach to stomach, because we have all these groovy serotonin receptors in our gut, mm-hmm. and uh, and when we press. Uh, and tuck in, that really shuts down uh, that stress oh, system quickly. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, quickly. Yeah. Nothing else really does it. Uh, uh-huh. The eyes can do it uh, in close proximity, but nothing mm-hmm. is as strong uh, as, as, uh, as effective in shutting down the stress system as physical touch. We know that from 9-11. We know that now mm-hmm. in terms of trauma models that, uh, that if people don't get uh, uh, physical touch uh, you know, in a timely manner, mm-hmm. um, they're more prone to develop PTSD. Yeah. So, right. yeah. So that's really important. Bad news for people who are touch averse or people who right. have had trauma in the area of touch, and we worry about those folks. 
So vision is uh, is the highest uh, in terms of regulation. Regulation, mm-hmm. and we have a visual brain. And the reason you want to be eye to eye and face to face is we make too many errors. We mm. make errors all the time in communication. We think we're understanding the other person. We don't. Yeah. We think we're being clear. We're not. So when I read a text and I'm, uh, you can perceive something via text how someone did not mean it to say to, to right. say something the way that you're perceiving it. Yes. What do you mean by emoji? Um, <laughs> right. How dare you? Uh, None of us have ever done that, by the way. <laughs> just to be clear, <laughs> it's it, this is the human condition, and people have to understand that we're perfectly imperfect, that uh, that as smart as we are, we're also really stupid. And we're, we're given to all these errors in perception, communication, memory, that it's amazing we don't go to war more often. Mm-hmm. So the reason you go face-to-face and eye-to-eye in close proximity is as, uh, as let's say I'm sitting here uh, uh, with Will, as he's talking, I can, uh, my eyes will go back and forth naturally between his left eye and his mouth uh, mm-hmm. more often, and I can make, I can error correct his words. I can still make mistakes, but it's better than if I were across the room or side to side or on the phone or on text. Will and I spend a lot of time talking about food. Some might even say that we get a little obsessed, but we know how important it is to nourish your body with what it needs to function at its very best. There's another thing that's crucial for optimal health, and you've probably heard me admit that I've struggled with it, and that's sleep. There are lots of tools out there, but arguably the most crucial component to a good night's sleep is a good mattress. And Casper makes a great one. What's so special about it? The Casper mattress combines four layers of pressure-relieving foam so you stay comfortable all night, and the material's super breathable so you can stay cool while you sleep. Beyond that, Casper is pretty much everything else you need to create the perfect sleep environment. They have bedding, bed frames, and a glow light to help you catch some Zs. Since we ideally spend a third of our lives sleeping, it's worth being comfortable while you do it, right? So check out Casper.com and use the code GOOPFELLAS to get $100 off your purchase of select mattresses. Additional terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms. So what do you think technology and us being so connected, quote unquote, on social media, what do you think that's doing to relationships? Obviously not just marriages, but friendships, et cetera. Uh, you know, it's... It, there are terrific things about social media. I mean, I can go through the day and uh, and stay in touch with my wife and my daughter. We can send selfies. We can, you know, w- we can stay in contact tethered throughout the day. That's nice. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that before. Well, I guess you could if you were in a tribe. Um, <laughs> you just go next door to the tent. But uh, so in that sense, it's really good. As a, uh, as a substitute for face-to-face, not so good. And uh, the people... I worry more about are the parents uh, with babies uh, before the uh, before 18 months. Mm-hmm. They're distracted. That's not going to be good. Um, for the rest of us, you know, we've always invented things uh, before we're ready emotionally to deal with them. <laughs> well, this will smooth out, even out, um, and uh, it's not going away. So unless mm-hmm. somebody trips over the plug. <laughs> yeah. So this is not me completely, but I have friends that – uh, they're in marriages, and they don't have the healthiest marriages. They may be apathetic, or that's kind of a hostile, not a healthy th- relationship at all. They have kids. What does the research say uh, for couples in that situation? Is it better for them to be separated uh, so their kids can see what a loving relationship is, or do they stay together for the kids because it's better? Divorce is not great, but there are worse things. Uh, to see a couple that is cold, 
uh, where there's a lot of acrimony, where there's a lot of derisiveness, contempt, <clears throat> disgust, uh, that has a huge impact on the children's autoimmune system. So, uh, so to, to, to stay married uh, um, and not be an example of how to do this thing called relationship. How Wait, can you back up for a second? Yeah. How does that impact our <clears throat> autoimmune system? Um, interesting studies on this that the person who's the recipient of, of lots of contempt Facial Asking contempt, for a friend, by the vocal way. Cont- yeah, facial <laughs> contempt, vocal <laughs> contempt. Um, um, their autoimmune system uh, will take a hit from this because you're basically with contempt over and over again saying, you're an idiot. Yeah. Right? You're an idiot. You're a moron. And so uh, that, that causes a problem. Now, to watch your parents tear each other asunder, to lose mm-hmm. both your parents because they cannot, uh, they cannot get along and they're being... Uh, they're being uh, uh, horrible to each other, that's going to affect the children's autoimmune system because they're the small bells, the parents are the big bells. Um, they are experiencing uh, you know, the home environment. The parents are the earth, moon, and the sun. If they're not okay, the kids are not okay. Mm-hmm. And people don't understand this, that, uh, that a good couple... Uh, partners that take good care of each other, partners mm-hmm. that have shared principles that they can demonstrate, um, uh, the kids do much, much better. And they start to do what they see the parents do, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, watch mom and I. see, you know, Watch what we do and we get mad. Uh, we admit we're wrong, we make amends, we make up, we kiss, and then we move forward. Mm-hmm. What if somebody wants to improve and get better and 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 work on their weaknesses but the other person says there's nothing wrong with me it's you uh what if one person wants to work on the marriage but the other one doesn't well that's a deal breaker (laughs) it's true you're in service to each other you have each other's backs you are doing things for each other that nobody would ever want to do unless they get paid a lot of money (laughs) it's a a very expensive unit yeah yeah (laughs) so it, it's a deal breaker, you said. I'd say that's a deal breaker. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious to know, um, and because you you talk you talk a lot about this, and there's this sort of this distinction between the I guess we we could use the honeymoon period as an example, yeah. but this idea of falling in love, where you fall in love in your in your lower brain and your kind of reptilian brain, and the rationale for that from an evolutionary from biologically uh, an evolutionary biology whatever it is you know what I mean sex from the perspective of evolutionary biology there's a reason why we let our guard down we fall in love and we become (laughs) blind and drunk in love and then as we transition from that into more of a long-term stable partnership, I feel like that's where oftentimes relationships really start to go awry. And if you aren't able to kind of establish some rules early on and understand as things change, like, oh, this is not the person that I married or, or this isn't the person that I fell in love with. They're a different person. Right. How, how do you navigate that kind of that, that um, I don't know, those, those, the waters between the honeymoon period and then settling into partnership? Well, I mean, it's kind of like phases of a rocket ship, right? Uh, the first mm-hmm. phase gets you out of the uh, atmosphere, and then after that, um, you know, after the second uh, stage drops off, you're you know you're either going to make it or you're, or you're screwed, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we we fall in love with ourselves mostly in that first year mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it's all projection, fantasy. It's our hope, right? We meet somebody, we feel hopeful. Um, we get a new lease on life. Um, mm-hmm. We're uh, we're wonderful in the eyes of the other, and everything is possible. And there's a lot of anxiety too. It's not all great, right? But um, but what 
when that begins to wear off and we begin to automate each other, um, which is going to happen, right? Everything new is going to be old soon. When we start to automate each other, we what stop. What do you mean by automate each other? Well, the brain automates everything uh, that's novel, uh, and this is for energy conservation. So uh, I have to. I have to relegate every novel experience to uh, something that is no longer novel so I can uh, have space for dealing with new novel situations. So when I first meet you, I want to know everything about you. I'm paying a lot of attention. I, you know, smell you, touch you, taste you, whatever. All that stuff is great. And mm-hmm. now, okay, I kind of, I kind of like got you mm-hmm. in a bit. It's not, I'm not that excited anymore. And, uh, and I think I know you. And that's when the problems really start to begin. I think I know you and I stop paying attention. I've turned my attention now to other things that are novel. And we become deep family. We become part of a, a memory that goes all the way back to early childhood. And now we're making a ton of errors of attribution because we're not really paying attention. We're not really noticing and watching. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a problem. So that's the, that would be the next stage, the next stage of automation when now the relationship is easier, but we make more mistakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that continues on <laughs> through <Yeah>. the relationship. <laughs> um, and the only only antidote to automation is presence and attention. Mm. Uh-huh. So that's how we keep our relationships fresh and yes. vibrant and life giving. And yes. So you talk about the shared principle, and we should be on the same page as far as that's concerned. How do we come up with the shared principle? Do we write it out? How detailed do we need to be with that? Think of it as um, a social contract, right? What do we come up with that's so pithy and short that a five-year-old could understand? Um, we tell each other everything. Okay, that's pithy. You know, that means fully transparent. The left hand always knows what the right hand is doing. Uh, we agree to do that because it's easier than to hold secrets and to keep information from each other because we're governing each other and everybody else. We have to have that information. And plus, what's the point if not doing that? Um, it's harder. It takes more resources to lie. So mm-hmm. uh, we agree to do that. And let's say that's a principle we hold each other to. And when the other person isn't forthcoming, we can simply say, remember, that's not what we do. We agreed. Mm-hmm. And that other person should naturally say, oh, I'm so sorry, you're right. Mm-hmm. Makes it much easier to adjudicate um, and litigate and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so that's why we, we have things like that. You know, we, we have each other's backs. Uh, we protect each other in public and private. Mm-hmm. Um, these things are overarching and uh, cover a lot of area. Yeah. Uh, you know, my wife and I have one. If one of us is in distress, the other drops what they're doing and ministers to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you kind of pick these things based on what you both want and what you both right. don't want and what you want to avoid. Um, and then you agree on it. And the reason you, we have these principles is for when we don't feel like it, which is right. a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I love how you you talk about also the importance of of kind of I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but like micro appreciation throughout the course of the day, and yes. being cognizant of all of the things that your partner does that you actually and letting your partner know that you're grateful for them that you're appreciative of them because that's sort of in the aggregate amounts to a sense of a, of being appreciated within the partnership. I, I I shower my my partner Tracy every day with all the things she does for me just as a way to hide how little I do in return. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that actually brings up a really interesting point that I'm I'm curious why why is it that we as guys suck so badly at at actually being invested in and 
wanting to work in our relationships. I, I'm imagining that the vast majority of the couples that you see, they're guys that are, if not dragged kicking and screaming, it wasn't their idea to come and see you. Well, believe it or not, there are plenty of men who are very invested in their relationship and women who are not. So uh, we, tend, we tend to, to hear. <laughs> we, yeah, we tend to uh, genderize these things and, and for good reason because there's still a lot of uh, attitudes about men uh, that they shouldn't have to do these things. Um, you know, this is sort of inherited by, you know, their fathers and their father's fathers and the, mm-hmm. the, and the culture. So, uh, so there, there's a certain male entitlement that still exists. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a female entitlement that exists. Um, but in general, we're talking about fairness. We're talking about quid pro quo, which, by the way, is harder to say uh, today, <laughs> given yeah. the Ukrainian thing. Yeah, but, that, that uh, phrase is used a lot today. I know. I have to find something else. <laughs> um, but but uh, but it's about fairness and justice and not so much about gender. Uh, it's about uh, are you both pulling each other's uh, – pulling uh, your weight? Are you mm-hmm. p- uh, putting everything into the relationship so that the relationship is uh, lower stress, easier – uh, that you're serving each other, mm-hmm. you're in each other's care, and that's really the point. It really mm-hmm. shouldn't have anything to do with gender. Yeah. I think one of the one of the things I really really liked about your approach is that it's. Um, I, I think oftentimes most of us, I know I, I historically have thought of couples therapy as being like an elastic ditch effort to save a failing relationship, rather than thinking about this kind of work is really good for anybody who is either in a healthy relationship or wants to be in a healthy relationship to learn how to be a better partner and to have a more yeah. successful relationship. It, it really is. I, and I've been struggling with the word therapy for quite some time now, especially in couples. It really is a, a more like school, uh, training, right. um, a, a education, practice, uh, workshopping. Uh, it's learning the tools of how to fight. Uh, how to mm-hmm. keep your eye on each other, how to regulate each other, uh, understanding the limitations of, of the human animal. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that's less therapy. There's therapy involved, mm-hmm. right. but, uh, but the, the way I work is really about uh, getting people bought in on secure functioning mm-hmm. and that it isn't really uh, a luxury. So you think we should all be in counseling therapy, even just for maintenance? And how, how often should the average couple go to be healthy? I, I couldn't answer that question okay. because mm-hmm. uh, and there's, I don't think of it in terms of healthy. I think okay. of it in terms of effective, working, happy, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, people are okay. Um, I would like it to be uh, – I would like it to start young, you right. know, I, in high school. I think that would be great. And uh, and I would love it if more people came to premarital because yes. you can you can really yeah. uh, do a lot uh, in the very beginning instead of waiting 30 years. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for, for folks that are in relationships that may not necessarily that, – that want or are curious or one of the partners is curious about – about doing this sort of work, but doesn't want to present it in such a way. I think oftentimes there's such a stigma that feels like if one partner says, "Hey, let's let's talk about, let's learn how we can be better partners," the other person might think, "Oh, wait, I thought everything was great. It's fucked up. What did I do wrong?" Right. How do you how do you um, help somebody who is interested in doing this sort of work in, within the context of their relationship to kind of bring awareness to it so that their partner can also get on the same page? Well, I, I think it's hard. I, I think that's a natural reaction. Um, uh, you know, the idea of going to therapy with your partner, um, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people would think, 
Well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, for other people like going to the gym. Uh, you know, it sounds like a great idea, but not today, not tomorrow. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there are other things I want to do, right? Uh, and so without understanding what it is and how it works, particularly in the way I work, which is fast, uh, that it is uh, – that it actually makes life easier, better. It's not about – uh, who's right, who's wrong. In, in my work, and I tell my students, in couples, there are no angels, no devils. Mm -hmm. Where there's one, there's always the other. Mm. This is not about individuals. This is about a system. And so, uh, and so th there's not a lot of understanding uh, out there about couple therapy. Uh, and uh, couple therapy hasn't had a great history going mm -hmm. back uh, mm -hmm. you know, to its origins. Only in the, in the last 20, 10, 20 years has it uh, become credible. Right, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I think it's I think it's hard to do that. Uh, partners may want to get their their uh, uh, their other half to go to a retreat, a uh, couples retreat. Um, mm -hmm. That's less stigmatized, mm -hmm. um, or go to a workshop. Uh, there's mm -hmm. other, lots of ways to step into this. So you talk about these mutually shared and, and agreed upon principles yeah. and, and, and they're overarching um, and our brain you know tells us it's we're basically selfish bastards in many ways yep. so we use the shared principles when we don't so when we don't feel like Absolutely. it we stick to it yep. so what are some action steps for us to do beyond that uh, for people we talk a lot about transformation and you know improving our lives on the show what are some things whether you're in a relationship or not for us to be a better version of ourselves Oh, golly, there's so many paths yeah. there. Uh, there are uh, so many ways that people now uh, can find uh, to uh, learn about themselves, spiritual paths, uh, psychological paths. Uh, yeah, you know, so far be it for me to say one thing is better than the other. Uh, I'm a couples guy, so if you're going to be in a couple, learn to do it well. Otherwise, mm -hmm. even though uh, you stand to live longer, and healthier and be happier in a secure functioning relationship, you can also die sooner if you're in a terrible relationship. So mm -hmm. just being in a relationship is, is, uh, is not the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to uh, – uh, it's conditional, right? This is a conditional uh, relationship. At the, at the very, very least, it has to uh, – two people have to guarantee each other's sense of safety and security at all times, at all times, uh, unequivocal. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, what's the point? Uh, right. th they have to agree to take existential fears off the table, such as, will this relationship exist tomorrow? Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. They have to be trustworthy, um, and, if, and if they make a mistake, they have to atone. They have to make up for that, make it right. Otherwise, what's the point? All you got is trust. That's it. Attraction is going to wane. Uh, feelings of love, whatever that is, uh, you know, individuals have different definitions. That's going to come and go. Mm -hmm. um, uh, everything is going to come and go. So what do you have? All you have is a sense of purpose. Why am I doing this? What's mm -hmm. the point of us? What and who do we serve? And uh, and where are we pointing? If we're not pointing in the same direction, have it come to Jesus because this may be a problem. <laughs> if yeah. we can't agree on big ticket items like monogamy, and I don't care whether you're monogamous or you're, you're uh, polyamorous, uh, you just have to defend it as mm -hmm. serving a personal and mutual good. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you can't agree on big ticket items, that's going to be a big problem. That's a deal breaker. Yeah. So people, I think, just have to think this through because a good couple is determined by the amount of load-bearing it can take and how 
its partners in that orbit not only just survive this life, but thrive. Mm. A good couple, uh, members will do more, be more creative, be better people in that system than they would be in any other system, mm -hmm. guaranteed. Because in other systems, being alone, being in a terrible relationship, uh, we become under-resourced. And when we're under-resourced, we cannot be as good as we could be. We cannot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not possible. Um, under the umbrella or the ecosystem or the auspices or the milieu of a secure functioning relationship, yeah. I feel safe, I feel mm -hmm. secure, I feel supported, I have, I'm tethered to somebody, you know, I can do whatever I fucking want. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. within the confines of our agreements. Um, uh, and, uh, and the world is, again, my oyster. I can, I can do things that I would be afraid to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. But the moment you feel untethered, you feel like everything's spinning out. Yes, and people have to understand that's normal. This idea of needing people or feeling needy, um, that is the, nor the natural state of the human primate. People do not understand that. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, people who distance and you know, are the cowboys or the people working on Alaska pi Alaskan pipeline, that is not um, the human condition. That is mm -hmm. an adaptation. Got it. Uh, <clears throat> we need uh, to be communicating with other people. If not, we go nuts. Uh, we need to talk to other people. If not, we go nuts. We need to be connected to people that, upon whom we can trust uh, completely uh, or we um, suffer the consequences. Mm -hmm. Full stop, and that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. You mentioned polyamory and open relationships. Have you, in your experience, seen those work at all? Ish. Um, I, I, I dealt with a community, a polyamory community, for a long time. In my experience, um, in, in that group, all of them broke up. Um, <clears throat> some of my colleagues have been more successful, and in the gay and lesbian community, um, there are sometimes more successes in this area. But it's it's very hard uh, because you have two people, uh, that's hard enough. When you have more people, it calls for even more thinking, even more shared principles of governance. People have to think about what could possibly go wrong. What if, if then, uh, if this happens, what do we do? Um, uh, because the ones I've seen, they don't talk enough, they don't plan ahead enough, they don't have really strong ground rules enough, and then they uh, crash and burn. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Stan Tatkin. I really, really, mm -hmm. I really love this dude. He's yeah. awesome. As I opened up the conversation in a world where there's so much fluff and stuff that like, I don't know, he just talks about, he, he's the real deal. Yeah. And he talks about integrity and mutual respect and honor and I think things that our culture is lacking in. He's like bringing back when it should never have been out, but he's bringing it back to our awareness as human beings, whether you're in a romantic relationship or just being a better friend, he mm -hmm. has some great tools. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, there's some simple tools. One of the ones that resonated with me most is this idea of gratitude, of just expressing throughout the course of the day mm -hmm. your gratitude for your partner, even for the most mundane things, because I think we often don't really realize how much we, we, we're, we tend to be very hyper aware of what we're doing, but mm -hmm. we're not really as aware of all of the things that our partners are doing for our families and for our relationships and even for us. Yeah. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. 
At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, well, it's time for another edition of Ask Me Anything. This question comes from Christine. She says, what's your ideal date night suggestion when it's your turn to think of one? I got to say, as a guy, I think that we tend to be pretty shitty at coming up with date night ideas. Uh, So this is a great challenge for us. So this is one that's been on my mind that I've wanted to do for a while. Um, I'm a big fan of John Leguizamo, the the actor and stand-up comedian. He's doing, And he's doing a show called Latin American History for Morons. Um, so, And I think it's actually, I think the show is going on. It's a one-man show. Um, I think it's going on here in L.A. So that's something that I would love to do. So I think doing like going to a comedy show I think is a great date night, um, a great date night idea. What about you? You're, you're married, so you, you probably have to put some effort into date night. <laughs> but- I am just like you said. I am horrible at date night suggestions. By the way, so I we have to get suck. better. Guys at it. are so bad at it. I know. I, it's to me. I think because I travel so much and I'm like on the go with even consulting patients. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm constantly on in that way. I just want to like chill out at home and like do nothing. Uh, and uh, and that really feels necess- super special. <laughs> Yeah, right. Spouse. That's not the you know most ideal date night suggestion. Maybe maybe it is. I mean, maybe sometimes it just calming, relaxing, and chilling out at home is a good date night suggestion. But a better suggestion for me, if I'm not just relaxing at home, it would be going and finding a new like healthy restaurant. Uh, so maybe looking on Google for like a farm to table restaurant or a healthy organic restaurant and going and exploring that uh, together. Uh, I think that that can be fun. And I love getting out in nature uh, and going on hikes and exploring different trails uh, in your area. Or if you're visiting a different area, do the same both with restaurants and different hikes. So those would, for me would be my ideal date night suggestions that wouldn't be date night you wouldn't want to go on the trail in the middle of the night but a date suggestion but not necessarily at night that's it for today thanks for hanging out with us will and i would love to know what you think about goop fellas if you have a chance please rate and review the podcast here and if you like what you're hearing hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend to see more head to goop.com slash goop and we hope you'll be here again next wednesday talk soon